the scripture reading for tonight comes from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to, his ser- to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. That's a scary little tale. A lot of murder, butchering, a chilling ending. It has a sort of classic folk tale rhythm to it. The king invites the people three times. Things always go in three in these sorts of stories. You know, three sons, three warnings, three bears, three little piggies. Three whatever Boy Scouts go into the bathroom one by one and hear a disembodied voice, the bloody finger. But usually the third time is somehow the solution. The third son follows the advice of the troll and ends up marrying the princess. But here the people refuse all three invitations. And the king murders them all. There's no solution on the third try. But you think maybe it's done. The people are somehow finally safe in the banquet hall. But then the king spots one without a robe. And he ties him up and throws him into the outer darkness where even if you open your eyes, you can't see anything. And there's nothing but the sound of gnashing teeth in the deep darkness. It's sort of like the one where the couple you know, thinks they've escaped the the mass murderer with the hooked hand. But then they get home and they get out of the car and they see it. A bloody hook hanging from the passenger side door. It's kind of dumb, but chilling. Maybe Jesus was good at scary stories. Maybe he even used a little bit of a scary voice. I mean, I doubt it, but I don't know. But maybe he didn't actually mean to be sort of secretly telling us in some sort of code way what God is really like. Like maybe he didn't mean for the church to take this king and make them their God. 
This sort of petty king who's insulted and slighted if anybody doesn't accept his invitation. So slighted that he'll murder them all and burn everything down. And even after that, all that mayhem and murder, even if you do happen to get in his banquet, if you aren't dressed right, you don't prepare properly, if there's something not right about you, he will not only throw you out of his party, but bind your hands and feet and throw you into the terrible, deep, hopeless darkness. But oddly enough, a lot of people have made this their sort of image of God. It's a hard parable. It's the kind of story that you can read a lot of different ways depending on what you have on your mind. Maybe like depending on what your agenda is. Martin Luther read it like the people who were invited and didn't come, the people who killed the servants of the king, that's the pope. The wedding garment is Christ, which is put on by faith, and the pope doesn't even come close to having the wedding garment on. Luther knows the story is bad. But he finds a way to read it that's okay with him. He aims it at the people that he thinks are bad. The people he thinks are worthy of his vitriol. People that he doesn't like. The way this has been often read is that people, the people invited to the king's banquet were the Jews. But they refused the invitation. So God invites the Gentiles. But still, even if you're a Gentile, don't get too relaxed. Because you still have to be wearing the right thing, cloaked in righteousness, according to Wesley, or it'll be the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth and the dark and the binding of the hands and the feet for you. Like God is angry when slighted, murderous even. So be careful. I think there are a couple reasons to think this might not be the best way to read it. Luke has a version of this parable, but in his version, there's no king, no king. Just a man who does at one point in his story get a little bit angry, but there's no violence, no murder. And the point in the end in Luke's parable is that the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind get to eat at the banquet instead of the people that were more socially acceptable. But there's nothing about anyone, well, anyone's wearing, and there's no sound of gnashing teeth. I mean, it's hardly even the same story in Luke. I mean, it is, but how you play the characters makes an enormous difference. The Gospel of Thomas has a version, too, and in that version, there's no king. And actually, the guy is totally chill, no anger even. Everyone's just too busy doing business to come to the party. So in the end, in the Gospel of Thomas, the parable says, the business people and merchants will not enter the place of my father. Maybe the person who wrote that one didn't like business people and merchants. People use stories to get different points across. The same story told in different ways means totally different things. This is obvious red riding hood. There's a version that probably most of us know where there's this sort of naive girl and then there's this wolf as sort of like a wolfy seducer man. But in the end, she's saved by the good woodcutter man. It's sort of a simplistic, chauvinistic morality tale. But there are so many other versions that most of us probably don't even know. Sometimes the antagonist isn't a wolf, it's an ogre. 
Sometimes the wolf leaves the grandma's blood and meat for the girl to eat, who then unwittingly cannibalizes her own grandma. Have you heard that one? Sometimes the wolf asks the girl to take off her clothes before she gets into bed with him. And the wolf eats the girl, and that's the end of the story. But in others, she sees through his disguise, and she tries to escape. This is so interesting. Complaining to her grandmother that she needs to defecate and would not wish to do so in bed. The wolf reluctantly lets her go, tied to a piece of string so she doesn't get away. But the girl slips the string over something else and runs off. Escaping with no help from any man. Interesting. Some versions are thought to be about the changing of the seasons, and the red, the red hood really represents the bright sun, which is ultimately swallowed by the deep darkness, the wolf. Some people say it's a story of rape. Some people say it's a story of a more sort of exciting sexual awakening. So I'm just saying, you put a different slant on a story, you change the characters up a little, the interpretations can be wildly, wildly different. That's how stories work. And what Ben read today is a story. It's a parable. And Matthew definitely tweaks it. Matthew's version is like grotesquely violent compared to the other versions we know. Is that because... Matthew just really wanted us to know how violent the kingdom of God is? Probably not, since he spends a lot of his book contrasting the Roman Empire and its violent ways with the kingdom of God and its nonviolent ways. I mean, just read this parable next to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew spends a lot of time working on this image of the kingdom of God that is something so different and surprising and other and sweeter and more beautiful and hopeful than the kingdom of Caesar. It's the poor, not the king. It's the merciful, not the retaliators. It's the meek, not the cruel, easily slighted tyrant that define the kingdom. And the main character of Matthew's gospel is Jesus. Jesus never grasps for power. When Peter asks how often that he should forgive, Jesus doesn't say, three times, and then murder them. <laughs> he says, infinitely. And Jesus is slighted. Jesus is mocked and betrayed, and he goes on to die a violent death without any retaliation whatsoever. The king in this parable is such a different character than Jesus. I think I might like to go to a party Jesus was throwing, but I wouldn't want to go to that king's party. He's so particular, and he murders people. But people don't normally refuse an offer from a king. That's a thing. An invitation from a king is not really an invitation. It's an offer that you can't refuse. It's an order. You don't refuse a king. Even an awful, terrible king like Herod the Great, who happens to play a bigger role in Matthew's gospel than any of the other Gospels, Matthew 
tells us that Herod had little babies slaughtered, little babies, out of pride and paranoia. He was paranoid because, remember, the wise men asked Herod directions to find the new king. And Herod flies into a furious rage, Matthew says, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem that were under two. Matthew might have, it's possible, made up the slaughter of the innocents. It's not recorded anywhere else in history, not that that means that much. But I think that Matthew's pressing a point. I don't think he much liked kings. And for good reason. Herod the Great, by all historical accounts, was an outrageously violent man. He had his own wife executed. He had his own sons executed. When he was dying, he was afraid that no one would cry at his funeral because he was such a horrible man, so he gave orders to round up other popular men. And he said, have them executed on the day that I die, so that at least some people will be crying on the day of his death. Josephus says, so his grave might not be without the tribute of tears. Thankfully, no one carried out the order. And the people celebrated the day of his death like a great banquet. Herod buddied up to Caesar as much as possible. But even Caesar, who was, oh my goodness, quite violent himself, said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So I don't know. The characters in this story that refuse the king's invitation, I'm not sure that that makes them the bad guys. I think I might like them. It makes them seem a little bit brave. I feel maybe just a little itty bits, bitty bit sorry for the king that no one accepted his invitation, but he's a bully. Maybe all the people had secretly agreed to boycott the banquet as an act of resistance. Some of the original hearers of the story must have been attracted to the characters who didn't jump when the king called, because their kings were minions of the Roman Empire, and they weren't very nice. And plus, the way of God's people has always been to resist the summons of worldly power. I mean... Would Moses have gone to Pharaoh's palace to eat his fat calves? I like the resistance. But then the rebels turn out to be so disappointing. They treat the king's slaves shamefully and kill them. No one looks good in this story. And it's a really familiar story. I hate it. It's so disappointing when the revolutionaries take on the methods of the empire, execute the former regime. You just so badly want them to be different. Have mercy. Don't you? I want the resistance to be different than the oppressor. Isn't that the point? But they hardly ever are. But still... The king retaliates explosively. He escalates the violence dramatically. The rebels may have killed a a few people, but the king sends in the army, the troops, 
overkills, undoubtedly, completely torches the whole town, burns the rebel city down, and those who are left alive after this murderous rampage, walking in the streets amidst the rubble, are rounded up for the banquet. Somehow, that doesn't seem like a fun time. I doubt that the banquet hall was full of laughing and dancing people. I think it was full of people sitting stiffly in their chairs, afraid. Afraid not to eat, but too scared to eat, choking the fatted calf down their tight throats, ready to see blood spill across the roasted lamb when the king was slighted. And then it happens, of course. The king is slighted. Someone's not wearing the proper robe. I mean, come on, how could you have dressed properly? The king just burned down your houses and, he, and killed your neighbors. But the king centers his sights on this one, this one sacrificial, speechless victim. The king says many are called, but few are chosen. Just the one is chosen here, bound and gagged and cast out. And does that somehow make the banquet go better after that? Like, ease the tension? The scapegoat's out? It sounds like an empire story to me. Most of the time, Matthew works hard to show that the kingdom of God is different than the empire kingdom. If there's really even anything that could possibly be called a king in God's kingdom, it would look like Jesus. Jesus says he comes not to be served, but to serve. That'd be unusual for a king. But I mean, maybe a lot of Caesar types say something like that. I come to serve the people. But really, they're usually in the positions they're in because they need people to regard them highly. They need attention, and they want power. And Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is significantly different than that. And Matthew pushes it, in case we haven't picked it up yet. Jesus tells this parable shortly after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which Matthew quotes scripture to describe. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on an ass. You know what? No matter what Caesar says about being on the side of the people, he's not coming to you, humble and mounted on an ass. Jesus is so different, it's practically funny. I mean, that's funny. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on an ass. Does Matthew really want us to believe that God is like the violent king? Or maybe he wants us to contrast the violent king with Jesus. People through the whole history of interpretation have been trying to figure out who is the man without the robe. Is it we who fail to be holy? Is it the Pope? The people you don't like and think are bad? How about the one who is mocked and tortured so that we might quit mocking and torturing? Jesus is stripped of his garments in the end. 
Isn't there some story where mercy wins in the end? Isn't there some story where the resistance is truly, 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 utterly different than the oppressors? Pretty much the most basic thing about Christianity is the belief or the faith or whatever that we know God through Jesus. And if we look at Jesus, we will know God as purely grace. Jesus reveals who God is, the storyteller, not the enraged, vengeful, retaliatory king in the parable. And yet, way too often it happens. So much of the Christianity I grew up in got its image of God from these scary parables, based its image of God on the angry, violent king. And it's not only there. But how is it that that image of God persists, even in the face of Jesus? Does it say something about us, like who we normally serve, what kinds of things we make our gods, who we follow? We do it all the time. We follow Caesars. We follow the powerful. We believe in the powerful. Maybe it's hard to believe in the way of Jesus. But this this so isn't the kind of feast where you have to be afraid that someone's going to be mean to you if you're not all right. It's the kind of feast where you let the grace of God be absorbed into your body into your cells, even if your mind can't quite grasp it. Eat it and drink it. 